Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Some years ago, a healer told Bayo Akamalafi that he could find his way if he was willing to become generously lost. Raised in a Christian family in western Nigeria, he gave up a promising academic career to pursue a life outside the highways of the familiar, what he calls a decolonizing journey in the borderlands of globalizing culture. Akamalafi is co-editor of We Will Tell Our Own Stories, The Lions of Africa Speak, and author of These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. He's taught at Middlebury College, Sonoma State University, and other schools, and currently lives in India with his life force, Ijeoma, or Edge, and their two children, Alethea Anya and Kia Jaden. So welcome to the Story Talks Back, Bayo. Uh, it's really wonderful to talk to you, and I really appreciate your time and your insight. Good to be here, brother. Yes. Um, I wanted to talk to you first um, just about stories in your, your past, so stories in your childhood, um, stories in the culture you were raised in. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think I have a lot to learn about that. But um, I would love to hear how stories have played into your forming you as a person. Hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. Uh, it, it, amazingly, you know, um, there, there's a romanticized notion of stories and storytelling that is um, a, a romanticized version of how Africans tell stories. And one that was also new to me because I grew up wanting to be um, wanting a life around a, a campfire, you know, a village fire. But most of our stories came from the television <laughs> because, and, and this, is a this is a tragedy of colonial um, interruptions, you see, that, um, that our life, I grew up in the wake of um, colonial departures and grew up in the city and in a family, as you would expect a family to be in any other part of the world, tragically. Um, I did hear of storytelling traditions that where the griot will travel across the land. The griot is the, uh, the storyteller. Right. Uh, or the town crier would travel across the land, you know, screaming instructions from the palace. And we heard all those stories, but we heard them mostly from the television. Now, there's nothing wrong about that. There's nothing bad about that. But there was a sense of loss that attended my growing up into a world of story. Um, there were occasions when the snatching away of electricity became, you know, the spark uh, that, would, that would initiate, you know, a storytelling moment with an uncle or an aunt but those were few and rare. Um, I grew up into story and meeting story as an old friend, like an old friend that should that I should have had a lengthy relationship with, uh, with mm. but was getting to meet as a stranger, if you will. And um, and I've been simultaneously touched by all that I've lost as a result, but also enjoying the worlds that are now beckoning, you know, the world of Ijakpa, the Turtis, the worlds of Shongo and Eshu, you know, these are worlds that were pushed behind, you know, the imperatives of modernization, the imperatives of rapid industrializations, the imperatives of catching up with America or, or the United Kingdom. 
um, now I can enjoy those stories without seeing it through the prisms of uh, Christianity, for instance. Yeah. Interesting. So when, when did you really start to get immersed in those stories that you feel like you, you should have been in touch with from the beginning? Actually, it was between the time of my graduation from the university and my transiting to becoming an academic. I, this, this, was a very, this was a very lively time in my intellectual, uh, in my grappling with the world that was, that was uh, I demanded more from me than the things that I held dear. Um, I, I started to, to reckon with postmodern theories because I have to put this, I have to say this as a backdrop or as give it as context that I grew up in a highly Christianized world. So the typical for me was that I was a subject of a grand creation scheme by a distant God. Um, I don't know, there was something kind of finished about that story that didn't invite story mean, the ING to happen. So it was kind of done. Like it's all done. Just situate yourself within the righteous order of this. And if you're lucky enough, you situate yourself on the good side of things, you know, not on the bad side of things. When you situate or story the world in that way, there isn't much room for movement or experimentation or strain away from the algorithms, right? You, you, you just stay put. And so it was around this time that I started to have, I think my, you know, the, my uh, experimentation with story uh, coincided with my loss of faith, uh, my loss of uh, my received faith, or the querying of my faith. Um, Christian faith. Around that, what do you say? Christian faith. Yes, yes. It was around this time that I was asking questions. I, I was always asking questions, but I was getting more courageous in posing these questions. You know, and. And um, no answers, no, no well thought answers were coming my way. It was basically turning away the head, just excuses, it was villainization. So I stayed with this rupture and, and felt invited into a linguistically diverse and near emancipatory world of story, a, a world where, uh, a world that was still being made a world that was conspiratorial, a world that was experimental, not just a world that was done with, where the past is the past. Then I started to listen, you know, and re reacquaint myself with um, my traditions. And, and I started to dress like my people then, because up till then I was suit and tie, and I was gunning for the pinnacle of academic, you know, uh, achievement. Mm -hmm. um, and that meant, ironically, looking less like myself or looking less like my people. So it was around this time that I, I started to enjoy story. I started to play more with those worlds. Yeah. So like, what are, what are those stories like that really sort of got you in touch with, you know, what you felt was your, your lost identity, your lost culture? What, what are those stories like, or can you describe them? Or You know, you know I, I don't think I can, I can name one. Maybe I can name one. Maybe I can name several, but, but okay, I'll try. I'll try my best. I, I think for me, the, the, the very idea that, my, that the stories that I started to reacquaint myself with spoke to the times, spoke to the crisis, you know, that I was dealing with. Uh, spoke to my people's conditions was shocking in itself because I'd learned, I'd, I'd grown up with the, um, the hidden DNA of colonial interruption, you know, deep embedded, deeply embedded in my bones. And that is basically, even though we've left you behind, even though we're done here, <laughs> know this, that you're dependent on our epistemologies your world is always going to be second tier, right? So my, my training was to catch up. My training was to learn as much from white mustachioed men, you know, and to learn as much of their trade secrets 
because the world, according to me, was universal. Universal, a-contextual, a-political, a-historical. It was devoid of my of cultural nuance. So to learn that the things that my people said and did actually had some worth, you know, that we had histories, that we had stories to tell, that Ijapa the tortoise climbing a tree and releasing wisdom back into the world from his calabash where he had trapped it, you know, was a way of speaking to greed, but more than just greed was a way of speaking to the fact that knowledge cannot be contained. I don't know a better critique of Google or or (laughs) the ongoing digitization of information than learning about Ijapa to learn um, about issue. You know, the transatlantic traveler, uh, the the trickster and the Yoruba pantheon of gods who traveled with the slaves. And to learn that story, just just mind mind blasting, (laughs) like we say here in India, mind blasting. It it brought me to, uh, it brought me to new philosophies, new ways of thinking about um, framing our issues today. So when my people... Um, would say, you know, if you, wanna, if you want to go to someplace fast, go towards the obstacle. You know, that's post-humanist theory. That is, that is deep feminist theory. Those are the things that we are, you know, experimenting with today that my people have been speaking about for some time. Of course, not in the forms that we speak about them today, but they're diffractively similar. They're diffractively uh, intimate. So that is, for me, the... Um, uh, I'm still recovering from the shock of, of, of this, you know, the shock that um, my skin or my voice or my language or my words or my stories, my, in the sense of a larger, thicker my and we, um, actually coincides with the world in its worlding of itself. So can you just give the plot or give the essence of, of one of these stories, like you, you mentioned one about releasing gifts from a tree, I think you said. Right. So well, what is that um, story? Well, it, it, it's a story of Ijapa, who's the tortoise. And we have Yoruba, Yoruba folklore has you know, lots of um, um, trickster figures, you know, ne'er-do-wells, you know, um, that were often deployed as uh, uh, conveyors of ethical uh, principles, moralistic stories, basically. So the tortoise would steal from grandma's pot and that's a way for grandma to say, don't steal from, from the pot or something like that. It was, but it was a, it was a lot less simple, simple than that. It was a lot more complicated actually than that, there was a lot more packed in. So this story that I might just share with you right now briefly is a story of a tortoise who challenged the gods and basically said, I know just as much as you guys. I know as much as you. And the gods laughed him to scorn. You don't, you don't, you're a tortoise, you're an animal. And the tortoise decided he was going to embark on um, a Googleization of the world, if you will. To travel the length and breadth, much like Freya, the goddess mother of Baldur in, in, in those traditions, um, travel the world to make everything and everybody swear not to harm her son, right? Um, in the same way, Tertius decided to visit everything, to visit the lion and ask the lion, why do you roar? How do you roar? What are the various gradations of roaring and the nuances of roaring? And it was just a very epic qualitative research. And his method of containing and capturing this knowledge was with his um, calabash, which he hung around his neck with a string just in front of his tongue. And so he would go to Dave Stanton and say, how do you keep and maintain your beard? You know, what is it you do? To maintain that luscious thing, and he would go to the sun. <laughs> what makes you bu- burn so uh, fiercely? And he went to everything, and he collected. Don't ask me how. 
collected this wisdom, stuffed it in his calabash and tied it up with a string, you know, another string with, a, with some leather. And when you have that kind of um, irrecoverably precious knowledge, um, treasure, you would, you would do as much as possible to hide it, to own it for yourself, which is what he did. So he decided, I would, um, I think I should hide this. This is very valuable. No other being in the universe has this. So where do I hide it? And he looked upward and noticed the grand Iroko tree. The Iroko tree is a sacred tree uh, where I come from. Spiritual, scary, uh, haunted by ancestors and ghosts. It's not to be trifled with. Bold, courageous tree. Elder tree, like an elder tree. And so it was just this tall tree and, and some of the uh, fruit of the Iroko tree looks like the calabash. And so he decided, uh, at least mythologically, and so he decided, I'm going to climb this and hang my stuff there, disguise it, camouflage my treasure there. The problem was how to get up the tree. <laughs> we didn't have a clue. And so he would go to the tree and wrap his abbreviated limbs <laughs> around <laughs> the strong trunk and proud trunk of, of the tree to no avail, nothing, failure. Every time he tried, he would wrap his hands around. He would scale it, you know, climb just a few inches and fall back to the ground. Nothing he tried was working because of his, you know, abbreviations, to put it politely. All this while, while he was, um, you know, trying to do this, a grasshopper in many other iterations, maybe a snail or something. Well, in whatever iteration, this animal that was looking for our purposes, the grasshopper, is considered the stupidest of animals. <laughs> and specifically so to this story. And so the grasshopper is watching from the bushes, you know, and just shaking his head and laughing, chuckling, you know, to himself. And then he hops out and the tortoise notices and tries to pretend like nothing's happening, whistling, you know. And the grasshopper says, I've been watching you all this while, my friend, <laughs> you know. Um, here's an advice. I'm just going to the market. Why don't you just put the calabash on your back? See if that doesn't help. <laughs> and then with nothing more to say, hops away. The tortoise is embarrassed. Like... The stupidest of animals just gave me <laughs> the wisest of creatures. This most obvious thing to do, most obvious advice for nothing. And then he starts to rethink his old paradigm. Like, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Well, to cut the long story short, he climbs the tree eventually by putting the calabash on his back successfully. And when he gets to the tree, his paradigm is transformed. And he knows at that moment that knowledge cannot be captured, that there's no such thing as knowledge that can be contained or incarcerated because knowledge emerges in our relationship with the world. It is not an object. It's not a product. It's not the recipient of our energies or exertions or agency. Knowledge is the betweenness of things emerging in how things interact with each other. That's just my take on things, my nerdish take on things, on that story. And so he releases the knowledge back into the world. And the story is told that that's how we learn everything. That's how we're able to do the things we do today, because Tertius released it back to us. Uh, but the deeper story here for me, and I think it's so generative and rich that I can revisit it again and again. And it means something different for me each time. But the most persistent or resilient lesson here. Uh, which transcends just being a lesson, is that knowledge is not a thing. That knowledge is how we navigate the world. Mm -hmm. And it's not even entitled. Humans are not entitled to knowledge. The world is knowledge in itself. Amazing. Um, one of the things that I noticed in reading, reading your work is this sense, and it comes up in, I think, in that story too, it's a sense of collective ownership. And um, 
and also sort of the mistaken idea that, for example, a story can be attributed to one author, you know, that one author can say, I wrote that story, I own that story, yeah. you know. Um, for example, these these stories you're telling, there's no author, right? They're they're communal, they're they're passed down, they've been yeah. probably changed many times. Do you feel like that's a difference between sort of a Western view of story and uh, a view that you would take from your culture? Yeah, I think of the Western in very very with with some hesitation. I don't like to. Um, like the Western is a vexed concept, right? There isn't a tidy thing called the, the Western. The Western civilizations or cultures include the Druids, for instance, mm -hmm. the Druids mm -hmm. and, and, and the colonized people that we now call white people, right? <laughs> um, so so, so it's, it's not like the Western is some trope of villainy. Um, that we can say this is all that's wrong with the world and this is all that's pure with the world. The non-Western is all that's good. So just to, that's just some context there. But yes, to some degree, um, I would say that to the degree that the Western is associated with hyper-individualism and humanism and um, the continental philosophies that believe or uh, um, that situate the human as the fulcrum around which the universe spins. You know, um, to the extent that we can associate the Western with the Enlightenment product, uh, project um, and, um, and uh, you know, the exertions of uh, New, uh, Isaac Newton and, and uh, Cartesian, you know, paradigms, to that extent, I would say yes, yes. Um, we think of stories as having authors and neat origins. Um, where I come from, the, it's difficult to arrive at the notion of an author. Uh, at, at the, because we're, it's very communal, it's very collective. Mm -hmm. So a story is shared. There isn't like property rights, you know. Um, there, there's call and response dynamics. There's, there's chanting, there's singing. Um, only within the fabric or the embroidered fabric of, of capitalist structures and architecture would you think that a story originates from a tidy origin? But isn't that tidy origin also indebted to to the environment, also indebted to his or her mother or exactly. father and, and community and genealogy and, and the foods that he's eaten and ancestors whispering in his ear. So, so this idea is very liberal humanist, that inspiration comes here and the genius of my genius is to, is to inseminate the world with my genius. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I think otherwise, and I, I, there, there are actually Western philosophers that also have said this. Uh, Deleuze, Derrida, Foucault, French philosophers, all that I've mentioned, um, spoken about, we're indebted, we're not the author. Uh, we are the, uh, Derrida said that. We are not the, uh, or the reader is the author, so to speak. So laying claim to a, a richer dynamic um, or pointing out a richer dynamism that connects us to the fluidity of life and stories. So this is probably a, a tough question to answer, but oh, okay. how, do you, how do you envision or can you envision a way that, you know, the Western universe, the Western truth, capital T, can somehow exist alongside other truths and could be, you know, the truth of your, of your stories and your culture could somehow have as much importance or be as much a, a, a shaper of perception as the Western culture has become. 
How could that happen? Um, I think the, the great author, Chinu Achebe, who wrote probably the most popular African novel. I should, maybe right. I should even say African novel, but <laughs> one of the most popular novels, period, right. in the world, Things Fall Apart. Um, I think with, his, with that book specifically, he disturbed the idea that there, um, even indigenous communities and paradigms are pure, right? And, are, and, aren't, and aren't already contradict, uh, contradicted by themselves, by elements within it. I think one reading of that story, for instance, is the idea that um, it wasn't so much um, the white man that destroyed the Igbo civilization or laid bare and this, um, uh, killed off uh, the culture of Okonkwo, who was the uh, hero in that story or anti-hero in that story. Um, it was also the collusion from within conspiratorial element from within. It was the rigidity of a culture that was unable to adapt to changing realities. Um, and it does this without making an enemy out of any of the sides, even though we can say to a large extent that um, these colonial interruptions you know, were gruesome and grievous and harmful. Um, but to resort to binaries and dualisms might be even more harmful to those who are oppressed. Um, so, so Chino Achebe lays a good model down for my response here, that I, I think the world is a rippling, imminent unfolding of itself. That is like um, a diffraction, you know, how ripples diffract into each other and are constantly creating interruptions and interventions and new patterns. I see the world rich, richly in that sense, that, that the world isn't the clash of civilizations. It's not about synthesizing the West and the non-West or the South and the global North. It's about noticing the differences within even within our own selves, when we claim to be coherent, neat identities, you know, that I'm a black man, not even the idea that I'm a black man is upended um, by the fact that my identity is nomadic, is constantly traveling. You know, I might fit within prescriptive categories of behaving because of a larger metapolitics that says, this is how you behave if you want to lay claim to power or if you want to have a, a seat at the table. But at the same time, to navigate the world is to be undone. Uh, to travel is, to, is, to, is not to arrive intact. So I feel that, I feel that we are, um, that this is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't frame it as how do we bring the West together with, with, uh, with the East or how do we merge the North and the South. I would see, I would ask instead, what are the differences you're noticing Within your cultures, what are the places of tensions and contradictions, you know? Um, and those are the places, the sites of new forms of power, I feel. The places where new patterns emerge. So within even our own traditions, there are colonizing elements. I mean, our kings sold our people to the diasporic world, you know? Mm. So they were part of this whole thing, too. Of course, not to the extent that the slavers captured bodies, but yes, we are, this isn't a pure world. You know, I, I, um, I hate to think of the indigenous as pure. It's no longer interesting as a returning to that overly Christianized world that I'm still recovering from. So uh, this is the invitation, I think, that we notice how we are, in short, um, difference-making entities. Um, just a, a parallel question. Yeah. You know, something that's come up several times is the idea of the hero, you know, the good character versus the bad character, you know, and, um, you know, particularly, as you said, 
you know, like U.S. culture certainly treasures mm -hmm. individuality, you know. Mm -hmm. So you want to be the hero. The author is the hero, you know. Um, but it seems, again, in the story you told, the culture you're describing, that things are more fuzzy, you know. No one gets to be all good or all bad. Do you think that's um, an important element to have in stories or to recognize in the stories? I think the reason why Batman has found more success than Superman is because at some level we are alive to that. And maybe there's some transcultural exhaustion. Of course, ne never universal, but maybe there's a transcultural exhaustion with the hero, right? Um, um, Superman movies have not flown as well as the character they're trying to portray. But Batman, gritty and, and gloomy and down to earth is, is, the, is what everyone talks about, right? right. Um, other nerds can argue about that. And I would deeply respect that. Uh, but my, my point here is I feel that, um, that there is a, I mean, let me put it from, speak from my perspective and, and say that I'm deeply interested in stories that queer the hero, that disturb the purity of the hero. Uh, I like stories that end supposedly happily you know, with a happy ending. And just before everything cuts to black, textually or visually, a villain bursts out of the guts <laughs> and, and disturbs that pink ending, that mm -hmm. rosy ending, that everything is nice and dandy right uh -huh. now. So, so the idea that we are, we are an assemblage of, of multiple um, beings and bodies, we are a parliament of voices, we are not and have never been coherent or intact um, uh, is, is the trickster's work. The trickster is the one that invites and invites us to notice these contradictions, these vexed categories that are hidden behind our pretensions to purity. Do you feel that um, stories provide models for people's behavior and that they they should be thought of in that way and that they even have, you know, some kind of responsibility there or that, you know, stories should be created that are going to guide people to, you know, away from violence and towards, you know, peace or whatever. No. <laughs> I don't think stories are enough. And let me, let me situate this. Um, where does a story stop and where does it begin? Um, what are the boundaries of a story? Um, is the linguistic event the story? Is the telling the story? Um, what about the preparations that um, contextualize or condition the storytelling event and the story listening event? What about the food that the storyteller has eaten to tell the story? What about the clearing of the throat that allows the story to be, um, to be loud and clear to the person who's doing the listening? It's, it's just like, um, I forget the author who says, it's Fred Moulton, actually, who wrote the book, The Undercommons. Um, he suggests that where does study or where does music begin and where does it end? And then he points out that if you go to listen to some orchestrated music, um, the music doesn't end when the conductor drops the stick. Um, the music lingers in memory. It lingers beyond the listening event, right? So I, I think stories as pure linguistic traditions, oral traditions or textual traditions have been given too much power actually. And that we have done it to the dismissal of a materially evocative, instigatory, agentially powerful world. That the only way to think about stories right now in the Anthropocene, in a material 
world. And by material, I don't mean a fl the flat materiality of enlightenment. I mean the materiality that is already infused with semiosis, with meaning, with meaning making. I mean that my table right now, um, supposedly mute and dead and just instrumentally serving the function that I assign to it, is actually shaping the way that I meet you and converse with you right now. Um, it may not be part of the telling of my story right now to you, but in a way it is part of it. It's part of this assemblage, the furniture around us, the shirt you're wearing, the colors in the room, materially um, intimate and yet socially distant from how we reckon with the world, you know, have always been the condition for storytelling. So there is the, another dualism that situates language of which stories are species, you know, um, language as the mediating factor between us human beings, the story, the story wielders and the world which we, we seek to story, right? But I think stories are part of the ecosystem of mattering. Um, and sometimes it is the case that stories are not available or that the world resists our meaning-making attempts and our meaning-making rituals. So this is what Karen Barad would say when she says, we have given language too much power. Everything matters, every story matters, every language matters. It seems the only, I'm paraphrasing, it seems the only thing that has been disallowed from mattering is matter itself. So I, th I, th I think that the world is materially alive and that stories are a part of that, and that telling stories, vitally important, crucial to our times, but it has to be framed within a larger assemblage of movements. I mean, do you feel that that's because stories are dependent or seem to be dependent on language? Yes, language, but where, what, what is language? How do we frame language, right? Is it just a transference of, of meaning or is there something that connects the um, glorious uh, words of Shakespeare with the howling of wolves? Is there something lunar about our conversation right now? Something hidden? Is there something gastronomic, you know, and bacterial and, you know, about our conversation right now? Uh, we, we tend to sit, think of story only within a sphere of limited human interactions. And I think um, as someone who is committed to exploring a post-anthropocentric world, I am not, um, uh, I am very shy about centralizing story as the only way to conceive about transformation or as the only way to conceive of, unless we think about stories as you know, the, the, un, the unfurling of the world, which sometimes, you know, would disappoint um, uh, the, the, the linguistic attempt to story the world into a coherent whole. Unless we think about it that way, yes. One thing that I was struck by when I was reading uh, your essay uh, about stories, um, was that you talk about African stories yeah. as a unit. Um, and and you, you spoke before about how, you know, we can't say that all Western people and cultures yeah. are the same. Yeah. Is yeah. there a danger also in, you know, sort of centralizing African stories as a unit and th talking about them that way? And, or is that necessary to you know, get them the attention and, um, you know, that there is really a central African type of story that we can talk about? Um, well, beyond a conversation about typology and, and um, attributes of African storytelling traditions, because I don't think there is a, such a thing that is universal called story that is you know platonic and and distant and transcendent you know i i think we can only speak about story within the specificities of that tradition right so that every tradition is in a sense unique but also in a 
I think more critical sense um, changing and moving and traveling as well. Um, so it's, it's with that that I would say, um, that I think for the purposes that those of us in this part of the world have found ourselves burdened with, you know, the objectives of survival and thriving in a world that doesn't seem to be designed for bodies like ours, um, we will frame, um, we will try to draw boundaries around our traditions and say, this matters too, right? Um, it, it's, there's a proverb where I come from. I think it's attribute, attributed to the Igbo people, and Chino Achebe made this popular, that until the lions learn to tell their own stories, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So it's like we've been pursued for so long that there is a politically contingent, you know, and necessary um, demand, vocation, to situate our own stories as if they mattered too, because they do. Like we need to say that we are not just, um, we're not just appendages to Western flight, uh, to the Western march of progress. We also have weight and gravity, we also feel feel the world and the world feels us too. So we've had ways of living and we want to tell our story. Hence the title of my first um, literary effort, the book, we will tell our own stories. Right. The idea there is that we, you know, especially it was written within a very academic context. Uh, we can tell our own stories. We don't need to be tied by the apron strings to something that is external even though there's also a danger in framing the world in, in those ways, nothing comes without risk, you see, um, and nothing comes without some cost. But for the purposes of living, drinking good water, eating good food, learning to meet our own children in the immediacy of their needs, you know, and treasuring our gifts, the gifts of our bodies, the gifts of our hair texture, the gifts of our cultures as valid, as beautiful, not as inadequate, we will tell our own stories. Our stories matter. If you release some of the constraints of that story, then you might say that, that our stories are indebted to other stories in the world as well. That the world mattering, if you can think of the world as a, as a singular thing, then the world mattering uh, makes our stories matter as well. So we're indebted in a very ironic sense to the West, we now have new stories because of Western, uh, the Western civilization, the Western philosophies. We now have new stories to tell. So the, the world isn't neat and tidy. Um, but to answer your question directly, uh, directly um, with regards to African stories, yes, we've had histories, eons upon eons of traditions of telling stories. And we want to value that and share it with the world. You talked before about Googleization. Yeah, I wonder. You know, thinking about the uh, all of the digital platforms that are available now. You know, the just exploding content um, that's you know globally available, but still hierarchically sorted. You know, there's still you know. You may, you and I may have a story somewhere that nobody can find, whereas yeah. you know a story by, you know, someone with much bigger power, um, is very, very readily available. So, yeah. I mean, do you see these digital platforms as a way to sort of balance the power and um, bring marginalized stories forward, or do you think they are? basically just replicating all the structures we already had. I don't think it's a, an, I don't think it's an innocent replication. I think there, there are power dynamics here with what one might call the Googleization of information. You know how 
in other fields, one would speak about the neuroreductionisms um, of, of science or of cognitive-based sciences that try to uh, limit everything about that we know about experience and the mind to uh, nerve endings and synapses and firings in the brain um, and nervous systems and all of that. Um, and and that, that, that doesn't feel right because it doesn't seem like everything can be based upon my the chemical um, attributes of a neuron or something. I, I feel that the Googleization of the world speaks to the electro-reductionism of, of story and converting that for easy um, consumption by an increasingly domesticated citizenry. Like Google is made for good citizenship. It's, it's made for, it's made, it, it converts everything. It, it's the modernization of knowledge, right? It's what the Turtis was trying to do. Um, it's the flattening of the world. It's like, whatever Yoruba people found sacred, here it is at your fingertips. Now I can stay in the convenience of my home. And the, lux the luxury of modernity is that I can bring what was once far and distant close by. That is advantageous, but that is also risky and often dangerous to think that I can flatten anywhere and walk anywhere, that the world is always open, always available, always apparent, always, you know, you know user-friendly. And the danger of the user-friendly world, um, I think we can, we can have a whole conversation about this, Dave. Um, you know, just, just for instance, clearing uh, a forest and planting uh, car parks there and a new uh, housing um, village or housing uh, residential thing there. Uh, and then we wonder, why are there floods? <laughs> you know, why are they floods? <laughs> and, 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 and why are, you know, why, why are we suffering all these ecological calamities? I feel, I feel that, you know, the, there, there is some cost to a user-friendly world. If everything is available for us, um, if everything is always, you know, on the ready, you know, just jumping at our command, then we will forget our indebtedness to the world and we'll continue to think of ourselves as central to its workings. Um, and to do that is to co-create, reproduce and reinforce the Anthropocene. Um, if, the, if the world is flat and has no bumps and grooves, then it's not worth living. Is there any kind of storytelling or um, story structure that strikes you as very positive in the world mm. today? Is there anything that um, makes you optimistic for the future or the direction of, of thought? I would queer the question a bit um, by re-asking it to myself, not as what makes me positive or some well, optimistic or positive story structure or tradition. Because um, I'm not so much giving to the positive or to optimism um, mm -hmm. as much as I'm giving to awe, to the, to the weight of something that exceeds me. Like standing before a mountain doesn't exactly evoke feelings of optimism <laughs> from me. Uh -huh. but, but it does instigate feeling, uh, feelings of awe and worship that I'm in, some, I'm in the presence of something that is ancient and demands something of me. That, that this, is not, this is not just a, a place to, to, to dance about or something. This is a place to be, this is a place to look again and to tread softly, if you will. I'm in the presence of the sacred. It's also a place to play. Yes, the sacred is play as well. Um, so 
in, with that in mind, I would say that the, the story structures or traditions or paradigms that gives me room for pause are, are the stories of the ordinary around me. The stories of, which might share some kinship with the uh, traditions of some healers, what we call the Babalawos in Yoruba land, who, who told you stories by not telling you anything. <laughs> you know, not telling a story is one of the richest forms of storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, Baba, why is this happening? Shut up and go, go, go away before I turn you into something, before I turn you into a goat, or before <laughs> I slap you up the head. That rejection is what I speak about when I say I fear a user-friendly world because a, sh- a Yoruba shaman wasn't always available or wasn't always given to your demands for answers or certainty and will uh-huh. reject you outright. Like one did for me, and I actually, I actually quoted him. He said, well, I was asking so many questions. You were a PhD. And he said, I will turn you into a goat if you, I don't know if he meant it literally, but he said, I will turn you into a goat. And the person who was interpreting my questions for me, uh, his demeanor changed. So I wasn't exactly sure if he meant it. He, 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 his body <laughs> looked like he knew that this guy could actually do that and follow through with that threat. So um, um, silence, I, I would even call it silence. Silence is too flat. It's like something conspiratorial about the world around us. Like there, there's something almost shamanic about the world around us, about pixels and Google and tables and stuff. Like we're in a stream of other conversations. And we think that our own stories piercing through this fabric of things is the one that is central to this this gigantic epic stream of conversations. I think that's, that, gives me, that gives me awe. That gives me room for pause. That makes me silent and contemplative. And it, it humbles me. And if there's anything we need in these times, brother, it's humility. Well, that's a beautiful way to end the conversation. I'm so grateful for your time and uh, your insights. Uh, It was great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.